0: All right, so we finished the first letter of Thessalonians last week. Um, and we're going to start out with like an intro to two Thessalonians, and this will be pretty short as far as the study is concerned, because I'm going to give you some history, some background, because I think it's important to set the stage. And we'll just get through the first couple of verses of two Thessalonians. So just, we don't need to do a big recap of first Thessalonians, but just to set the stage, right, we're able to learn a lot about what Paul had in that letter for the church and where the church was, that they were growing in love and faith. And even though they impress him with the love and the faith that they have, Paul encourages them to do better and to do more, right, to abound in love. And this message, I think, is essential to us as believers, right? We should never stop loving one another well. As a church family, we should always strive to love each other more. As we mature in faith and grow in faith, we should strive to love well. And I think this starts in the home. I don't think this starts in the church. I think it starts in our homes. As moms and dads, we pull together. We're on one team. We love Jesus together. We pray together. We love our kids well. And that pours out into our church families. That's, that's how I think God has set this up as an institution for marriage. It boils out into the people around us, right? Starts in our homes. spreads into our local church, and then the church comes more more intimate and aware of its needs. Then it presses into the members and out into the community. That is the goal, is for what we do here to, to reach out into the community, serving, loving, and sacrificing. Right. So Paul's message to the Thessalonians includes the second coming. We talked about the second coming of Jesus Christ. He gives them some very specific things about the dead and then the living in Christ and them meeting up with Christ as he comes back. We discussed how Timothy had brought back word to Paul about what was going on in the church. And one of their issues was wondering what happens at the end. And they were wondering specifically what happens to those people who are dead already. So Paul covers down on that. He takes the time to make sure that they understand what's going to happen when Christ does come back and that they get to go be with him for eternity. But there's still some questions that need to be answered. And that's why we've got 2 Thessalonians. Um, This is where the second letter comes in, and I, typically for my study, I I, I read quite a bit before I write stuff down for this, but in this one, I listened to quite a number of guys as well, because there's some, there's some things about second Thessalonians that I'll get into here in a minute that, it's kind of strange, how did the word get back to Paul, that there was some of these questions that were still unanswered, is it a legitimate letter, was it really written by Paul, we're going to go into some of those things, right? So some theologians posit that there was some letter that made it back to Paul, like another. So Timothy goes back after he was left there, talks to Paul and says, this is what's going on. They're doing well, they're loving each other in the church. And Paul writes one Thessalonians. Some people believe that somebody wrote a letter from Thessalonica and sent it to Paul. That probably followed Timothy. And then Paul is responding to that letter with two Thessalonians. It's a possibility. I haven't found anything yet, but that's what some people believe. Um, Or it just could have been word of mouth. Somebody actually makes their way to Paul. Some other um, fervent believer or leader in the church just goes to him and is like, hey, they're still having some problems down there. They need some more guidance. So Paul writes 2 Thessalonians. Anyway, somehow they were believing that the Messiah had already returned. So Paul had given them 1 Thessalonians and tells them how it's going to happen. And somehow somebody's in the church telling them, oh, you missed it. Jesus came back. And they're like, what? Hold on a second. Jesus came back? What about us? What about the rest of us? So Paul, feeling responsible to the church that he loves, wrote another letter. And it's within months, definitely within a year of the first letter. And it's basically to clear up this issue. So 2 Thessalonians, it's written somewhere like, uh 51 to 52 AD um we're still going to see that Paul lifts up the church as we read the beginning of this he's he's happy with what the church is doing there uh, just like he did in the past and we're going to see Paul remind them of thankfulness that we shall all have as believers so Paul's like we've read this in all of his letters always be thankful always be prayerful we're going to see Paul's going to cover the day of the Lord in depth a little bit more and we are going to talk, or he is going to talk to them about what's going to happen first before the Lord comes back. So very important, is so where story starts clearing up some of the stuff they've been taught. And he's going to encourage them not to be idle. We talked about that in one Thessalonians. How they, he was like, don't be idle. You want to eat, you got to work. Um, they must keep working until Christ returns. And we're going to get into that when we get into 2 Thessalonians 2. There was this idea that if Christ came back already, I don't need to work. Or if Christ is coming back soon, I don't need to do anything. I'll just sit around and wait for God to come back. Not a good idea. And we're going to read some really good prayers, good prayers in this. So before we jump in, let me cover one small topic about reliability of this letter. I think talking about reliability of the biblical text is really important because we run into people who are critics who are going to try to tell us that the Bible is unreliable. (laughs) And so I, I always think it's good. To, you don't have to have a big, long answer or be super well-read in the biblical text to understand this stuff. A very short answer, I have read the information and I know that you are incorrect when you tell me that this is unreliable, is fair enough, right? So there are critics who believe Paul did not author this letter. And one of them I've brought up to you before. His name is Bart Ehrman and he's a professor of theology up at UNC, right up here, good old Raleigh. Um, and he goes as far as to tell us that this letter specifically is a forgery. So like I said, you encounter people who are going to try to lead you away from the truth, and that's really what they do. And they use a lot of tactics, and some of these folks are pretty well-educated like this guy. Erman. he's a Princeton School of Theology graduate. So when you consider that, when you one, it's Princeton, it's a huge Ivy League school, you know, it's got a lot of clout and he graduated from the theology program. And you think this guy must know everything. So he is spewing false truths. He is coming with lies. He is leading young, impressionable Christian students away. And people who are not believers are now just being reinforced in their unbelief. Look, all of that stuff is a lie. This stuff's unreliable. Because when we think about it, the way the Bible works is if two Thessalonians wasn't written by Paul and somebody said that it was, it means it's a lie. And if it's a lie, then it's unreliable. And then he can start to pick apart the rest of the biblical text. I'm here to tell you it's not a lie, and we'll go over how we know that. So this guy, big brain, getting paid a ton of money to be a professor up at UNC, is about to be debunked right here in the kitchen. So good for him. Right? So he wrote this book called Forged, and it makes some claims about the reliability of 2 Thessalonians. And they all have answers, all these claims he had. He's not a believer, he's leading people away. One of the allegations is that someone wrote to Thessalonians after Paul. So Paul has done his ministry, Paul has written some letters and somebody else writes this afterwards. And they write it after Paul as a means to correct the Thessalonians' laziness while they were looking forward to the end. Um, But here's one of the things is the consistency of Paul's view in his eagerness to correct them on the very same topics that come out of 1 Thessalonians, as he covered before. His introduction is very similar. His eagerness to pray for them and exhort them as a church are all calls towards Paul's authorship. So the consistency is there. Ehrman tries to confuse readers by using Paul's words describing Jesus' second coming, where he says here, like a thief in the night. Remember we went over that? He says, Jesus comes like a thief in the night by comparing this to two Thessalonians where Paul will give some clues to Christ's coming he basically asks is it a surprise that Christ is coming back or not so if Christ is coming like a thief in the night it should be a surprise but two Thessalonians says well there's some things that are going to happen first so if there's some things that are going to happen first then is it a surprise or is it not so here's kind of the short answer than this when Paul talks about the thief in the night, it's, it's for people who are asleep, remember that? Or in the night, or drunk, or had drunkenness. So they were not believers. A thief comes in the night and surprises you when you are not prepared. He told believers to be ready, right? So this isn't for non-believers to be surprised. This is for non-believers to be surprised, not believers. Believers are awake, they're in the day, and when signs appear, believers will know. So I'll go over one more, but another objection that Ehrman has is that the signature at the end of the letter is uncharacteristic of Paul. It's not his style, so to speak. But that argument breaks down quickly. Um, I read this big, long thing from this one theologian. He basically breaks that thing apart, breaks it all down into Greek. Kind of the Cliff's notes are Paul in Philemon and Galatians have similar statements of Paul writing. And it's in his own hand is what he says. I wrote this in my own hand. Similar scriptural uh, um, parts of the Bible, like 1 Corinthians, very close in the style. And then we've got things like Marcion has a 10-letter collection of Pauline letters where this is included. So you're talking late 1st century, so like the 80s, where he's like, this letter belongs. Um what we do know is that two Thessalonians was widely accepted as having been authored by Paul. Polycarp quoted the letter in 110 AD. He knew John and was familiar with John's martyrdom, or excuse me, Paul's martyrdom. Irenaeus quoted the letter in 180 AD. Marcion, by the way, he was a heretic. Uh, he included the letter in an early canon in 150 AD. Tertullian uses the letter as early as the third century. So all of these early believers and theologians utilize the letter and they say it's written by Paul. So everybody just knew it was written by Paul. So oddly enough, this criticism about authorship doesn't happen until the 19th century. So 1,800 years of reliability and it's good. And then all of a sudden... Um, In the 1800s, somebody was like, oh, I don't think that was written by the same guy. It's like, no, you're going to have to do a little better than that. So there's a lot of people that have relied on this for a long time. So let's jump in. We're just going to read four verses this morning. I wanted to do more, but I think that's a lot for this morning. So let's dig in and see what the first four verses have to say. So Paul starts out two Thessalonians in verse one. By saying this it's his greeting paul silvanus and timothy to the church of the thessalonians in god our father and the lord jesus christ grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ we ought always to give thanks to god for you brothers as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions you are enduring. So Paul starts off the letter just like he did the last one, says who it's from. It's from him, Silvanus, or Silas, same name, and Timothy. And the letter is addressed specifically to the church. Well, you notice there's differences in the letter sometimes they write it to a city it would seem like a circular letter like i'm writing to this city but it's really kind of for everybody in this case he's like i'm writing this to you people in the church this is for your edification your exhortation and he writes it in grace and peace from god the father and lord jesus christ he's very consistent in the way that he's writing Verses three and four is where we kind of get after it here. Um, It's a very simple call to thanksgiving that I believe we as the church can learn a lot from. And that's what I want to focus on. Not just spiritually, but like really practical church stuff. If you remember back to 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul prayed this, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for, for one another and for all. So Paul's like, you're doing a really good job loving each other in the church. But I'm telling you, you need to love each other more. Like you're doing a good job, now keep doing that. Keep reproducing that faithfulness and love for one another, serving one another, caring for one another. And that's how this works. When we learn who each other are and what our needs are, that's how we can love each other more. You can't really love somebody if you don't know who they are and what their needs are, right? It it takes some level of faithful maturity and uh, developing relationships so you're able to pour into one another. And it's apparent that they've taken it to heart. So when Paul told them to do that, they've learned. Because this report that Paul is getting, that he's responding to in 2 Thessalonians, he's responding and saying that they are increasing in faith. He says here, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So even in that short period of time after they got the first letter, They're like, okay, this is what Paul said to do. We need to work on that. And it's working. It's happening. So, and it's another thing that just tells us the letter's reliable. Paul's given a command. They're responding to the command. Paul's now responding to that and saying, you're doing the right thing. Paul's opening to this letter has him telling these faithful believers that he and the other leaders of the church that he's with boast about them. So he's really very proud of them. He's very happy that they are doing the right thing, that they are loving each other well. And I wanna talk about three specific things that he boasts in. He's gonna boast about their steadfastness, their faith in persecutions, and in afflictions that they are enduring while they are there. So we learn a little bit about what's going on in Thessalonica just from this. We learn a lot about that statement, about having faith in those things, about their steadfastness, just from that statement alone. The people there are doing well, but it's not easy. And that's really important. And we're going to talk about how that relates to us today. It's not easy just practicing their faith. And there's plenty of trouble for them to deal with while they're there. Okay? Steadfastness is the first thing he talks about. Steadfastness is perseverance. It's willingness to press forward in the midst of adversity. These people are not going to stop growing in faith and in love, even though the world around them is not loving. The world around them is not faithful like them. That's kind of the important take home from this. The world around them is not like them. That's kind of like us today. The world around us is not like us. It's up to us to be steadfast. It's up, around, it's, it's up to us to have perseverance. And I kind of ask the question as I'm reading through this, like, does this sound familiar? Does the world around the American church today look like a loving, faithful community? When we look at our community here, especially in some cities in America, do they look like good, faithful, loving communities? Do they look like Christian communities? Do people actually love and serve one another? It's one of the reasons I can't watch the news, because when I watch the news, I just don't see anything good that's happening, and I don't think it's good taking in that information. When the news actually kind of puts us in a position where we are choosing to take sides with people. That all equally need jesus we start to kind of despise one side depending on their political beliefs or their activism instead of just thinking all of these people need christ in their life we they start to parse us apart by what we think and what they are feeding into us they divide us as a nation but we still aren't as bad as thessalonica so let's talk about that right The second thing he boasts for is their faith in persecution. So persecution is people trying to shut you up. It's people trying to shut you down, people trying to run you out. That's what persecution really is. Remember, Paul, if you read back to Acts 17, had been run out of Thessalonica. They actually snuck him out of there at night for his own safety. It says that the people were agitated and stirred up, and they had to run Paul out of town and hide him because they were worried he was going to be hurt, okay, possibly killed. So they get them out of town, that's persecution. So they were dealing with that. It was an existential crisis for them at the time. If you were a believer preaching Christ, they would come after you. The last thing he boasts for is in their faith in all their afflictions, okay? So this word afflictions is interesting. It's thlipsis, plipsis. It's a word that describes pressure, extreme pressure. It's the same word that's often translated tribulation, actually. It's the same word we get tribulation from is this word thlipsis. These are when times are getting really hard. This is when people are coming down on you and beating you and not just running you out of town, but jailing people, not allowing them to speak. This is the real hardship of the world to include and all the way up to uh, being killed. So just to be clear, the church at Thessalonica is dealing with all of this pressure, all this persecution and all this tribulation, yet they are steadfast in their faith. They're unwavering. And not only do they have endurance, but they're continuing to grow in faith and love. So this church is doing really well in a hard situation. So when I read all that, I think, is the American church doing the same thing? Is this an example for our church that's here? So you and I have talked about it recently, like how bad are things here? Like how bad are things here? Things really aren't that bad. I mean, look where we are. We're in Pinehurst. We're eating Mexican pastries. The coffee is hot. The water is clean. Nobody's kicked down the door yet to tell us we can't do this. We can go have lunch somewhere and pray and nobody will persecute us or run us out. Things are pretty good here, right? Right? What about the state of the church? Are things perfect in the church? Yeah, I think there's a bunch of liberalism seeking in, but the reality is you can still preach the true gospel in America today and people will get saved. That's it. It's like, it's that easy. You can go teach them. And if they're in a church that has adjusted itself to be more amicable or more attractive to the world, well, then you change that by continuing to preach the truth to them. It's very simple. We can correct each other lovingly in all that. Most churches are complaining about how bad the world has come if you listen to a lot of the church today they're talking about how like the government's gone downhill and the world's gone downhill and there's all these agendas coming around that are trying to tear down the church and tear down the american institution and it's all of this i mean you name like the the cause and people are into it it's communism it's marxism it's the lgbtq thing it's this it's that it's tearing us all down and it's like Okay, I agree with you that they don't believe like we do and they don't think like we do. Gotcha. I agree with you 100%. But when I read this from Paul and how these people are doing, I can't help but think yeah, but we're still able to preach Christ. And nobody's kicked the door down yet to tell us we can't. So things are pretty easy here. Things are not that bad. Here's the, some of the things that I know to be true based on all that Christ came for us, He came from heaven. He came here to get us, came here to rescue us. He took our sin on the cross. He was resurrected on the third day. I know that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and the world is his footstool. He is in command. He is in charge. He is on the throne. The world is his. It is not mine. It does not belong to people who are unbelievers. It belongs to Jesus Christ, which means we are winning through his power when we preach the gospel and people get saved. Right For us, I think we can just do a better job remembering Jesus is in control, that Jesus is in charge. We need to focus on the power of the Holy Spirit to save souls. Instead of talking about how awful they are, let's reach them and tell them about Christ and tell them that there's salvation and things. That's what saves people. That's what changes people is Christ, not me. I mean, if you listen to me tell you how awful you are, you are probably not going to be my friend. I can tell you about Jesus Christ and how he can save your life. That's what changes people's hearts. We need to remember to focus on the power of the Holy Spirit to save souls instead of how bad things are. I'll admit it, I was an enemy of God before I was saved. I was an enemy of God. And if somebody in the church was to look at the old Jeff Stevens and the rebel rouser that I was, they would have lumped me in with all of those other people because I led a horrible, awful, destructive life and they would look at me and they would parse me out and push me out and say I wasn't one of them. So I think we need to be careful not to do that. If somebody had just focused on how awful I was, I'd have never ever made it into a church. Instead, what I did is I had a friend that loved me who was like, dude, you are killing yourself and you need Jesus Christ in your life. You're not going down the right road. That's the freedom of the opportunity that we have in the Holy Spirit. And even in my sin, Christ rescued me. Boop, there's the answer. So instead of focusing on all the bad stuff, and not that some of it doesn't need addressing, like to have safe communities and safe schools, we absolutely, as parents and as leaders in the community, we, there are things we need to address. But setting aside all pessim, pessimism, let's focus on our church growing in faith and love. Right here. Focus on your family growing in faith and love. So prayer starts in the home. And then let's be kind. Let's be the kind of loving, faithful, active, serving church that if Paul were here, if Paul were to walk in today, the greatest evangelist to ever live, he would walk in and say, you guys are doing a good job. Can you imagine what that would have been like for the church? I don't even think they get it. Back then... Thessalonica wouldn't have got it. We look back 2,000 years, almost, to Paul, and nobody—like almost nobody in the world doesn't know who Paul the Apostle is. That's how popular, the number one selling book in America. Everybody knows who Paul is. He wrote most of the New Testament. Are you kidding me? Paul walked into your church and told you guys you were doing a good job? So I wonder, as we grow as a church family, Will we be that kind of faithful, loving family that if Paul were to walk in, he'd be like, I like what you guys are doing. You guys actually love each other and there's evidence of it. And I think as we strive to get better in this, that's what we should strive to do. We should strive to be a loving family that not just Paul approves of, but ultimately that God approves of. Now let's pray for one another. Father God, I am thankful for you and I'm thankful for this letter that we are going to dig into. And I'm thankful for the reminder, Lord, that things are not that bad where I stand today, that I need to set aside my desire to complain about how awful things are and just be reminded, God, that you are on the throne, that you are in charge, that you are in command, that you and you alone can save souls, can save hearts, can change people's minds and change people's hearts to make everything better. And that it is not my responsibility to judge people and set them out. It is my responsibility to present you as a loving, saving God. And although you are the judge, that is up to you to judge them. It is up to me to bring the message of hope and faith to them that you may change them, Lord. I ask you, God, that you bless these families that have gathered around you today and bless the families who didn't make it to be with us, that you would remind them in their hearts that we should draw together as a church family and love each other more and more. Become intimate enough with one another that we know what our needs are and be able to fill those right here in the church, that we are a light to our community, that people would see us and say, I like what they have. What is it? And our response can be, we have Jesus Christ in our hearts. I'm thankful for you today, Lord. I'm thankful for these people who have allowed me to spend time with them in your name and ask that you continue to richly bless us in your holy and precious name. Amen.